a little bit of a disclaimer this morning before I get started and dive into the word. Uh, if I wince in pain at any point, and it might be an inappropriate point, okay, I need you to bear with me. I went mountain biking last Saturday, and I'm, I'm not getting any younger. And I went with Getty out at our Sandy campus, and he goes, hey, why, it's only the second time I've ever been mountain biking. And he says, hey, why don't we do Mount Hood? I'm like, oh yeah, like there's probably a little trail on Mount Hood. He's like, no, 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 we'll go to Timberline Lodge and we'll go 16 miles downhill to Rhododendron, right? That's my second time mountain biking. Well, I came off the bike and, uh, and I, I, uh, I, I think I aggravated my knee. I think I already had a problem. So I feel a little bit like the karate kid up here going into the championship game and I need a Mr. Miyagi, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, if I wince in pain at an inappropriate moment, that's why, okay? But we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. Hey, listen, we have been in this series uh, called The Good Life, uh, where we've been exploring uh, Jesus' teaching, and it's kind of his introduction to what's called the Sermon on the Mount, um, or it's kind of a summary statement of actually all the things that Jesus then goes on and expands on in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been looking at these 12 verses out of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus gives us his definition of the good life. And if you remember in week one, and Aaron and David have done such a great job kind of unpacking this series through the summer with myself, and, uh, but they've been reminding us every week that Jesus has a definition for what is the good life. Because every single one of us in this room asks two critical questions. What is the good life and how do I get it? What is a good life and how do I get it? And we recognize, as we talked about in week one, that man, everybody has some sort of answer to that question. And if they're in the kind of the, you know, the marketing world or the political world, you know, they're generally trying to sell you their idea of what is the good life. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is addressing in these few verses in Matthew chapter five. What is the good life? And how many of you know, Jesus has the right definition for what is the good life. If we believe that God created us, if God wrote the blueprint for us as humanity, God ought to have the right to tell us then what is the good life? What does it look like? And so he makes these profound statements. He pronounces these blessings over people who are in the kingdom, who are allowing God's rule and reign to be what structures and orders their life. And what we recognize is that, that Jesus is really teaching us what is the kingdom of God? What does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God? Or another way of saying that, the way we've said it over the last year, what does it look like to be a part of God's story? Now, what we've recognized, um, and it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I'm not, by the way, uh, to recognize that we live in a pretty broken, messed up world. And so we recognize that, man, there's this disparity between maybe what we read and what we actually experience. And so Jesus is wanting us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who call ourselves Christians, to live a particular way. We, we talked about this in week one as well, where we, we recognize that Christianity has a little bit of an identity crisis. That in America, we've reduced Christianity, or what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I have a certain set of beliefs. But what we're discovering through this series and what we're discovering through the Beatitudes is that Jesus wants us to put our faith actually into practice. He wants you and I to live this stuff out. 
The disciples are the early church, to, and the writings of Paul described it as orthodoxy or orthoprax- and orthopraxy. In other words, this is the right way to believe, right? This is the right thing to think. This is how you ought to order and structure your life. But you've got to put that stuff into practice. And so this is the exhortation of the series that we have been uh, working our way through. And so we've been unpacking the Beatitudes over the last four or five weeks. And one of, one of the things I want you to see, I want to throw this slide up on the, 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 the screen, because last week was a bit of a pivot week for us. And one of the things that you discover about the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus, is that the first three Beatitudes that we addressed in the first three weeks, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and meekness, all deal with the emptiness of the blessed person. Remember in week one, we talked about this idea that the poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Remember that word, that Greek word that we described? It was this idea that I am completely at the mercy of another. I bring nothing to the table. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt, that they don't bring anything to the table. In week two, we dealt with those who mourn. And David did such a great job of helping us understand that Jesus is with us in our mourning. One of the things that Jesus wanted us to understand is because we're spiritually bankrupt, we ought to then be those who actually mourn over our sin. That we ought to be repentant and sorrowful over our sin. Our sin ought to grieve us as we seek to follow Jesus. And then in week three, Aaron did such a great job unpacking meekness and this idea that we live in a harsh, difficult, abusive world, but we've got to be those who live with kindness and meekness even in the midst of the persecution. And and so what the first three Beatitudes do is they deal with the emptiness of the blessed person. And once you realize you're empty, I don't know about you, this happens more often than I wish it did, but when I'm I'm empty or when I'm famished, when my appetite's stirred, I begin to hunger and thirst after something, right? And so what Jesus is laying out for us is, man, we got to understand that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we are empty in and of ourselves, but that ought to produce a hunger in us for something. And what that produces is is the fourth beatitude, a hunger for righteousness. In other words, to be in right relationship. There ought to be a hunger in us. Those who want to live the good life, the way Jesus described it, there ought to be an appetite, a hunger within each one of us to live in right relationship with God and to live in right relationship with one another. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks is unpack the evidence of those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If you're hungering after right relationship with God and right relationship with others, what we recognize in the next three Beatitudes is the evidence or the practice of that righteousness. And what we discover, as we're going to talk about today, is mercy, number one. That, that those who hunger and thirst over after righteousness, those whose appetite is directed towards Jesus, the evidence of that is that they're merciful towards others. Next week, Jenny will deal with purity of heart, and then we'll close by taking a look at those who make peace in the midst of a lot of conflict. And so today, I want to focus us in on this idea of what does it mean to be merciful? In verse 7 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How many of you like to be shown mercy? Right? I know when I screw up, which is fairly frequently, the thing that I hope for is mercy, not judgment. 
In fact, James actually described the kingdom of God this way. He said in James chapter 2, verse 13, that in the kingdom of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, in the kingdom of man, judgment and revenge with its accompanying condemnation tends to triumph over mercy, doesn't it? I mean, you think about the world in which we live, and you think about how much judgment, how much condemnation, how much revenge takes place. Think about your own life. Maybe somebody wronged you. You know, you're driving kind of down Sunnyside, and somebody cut you off, right? Uh, Anybody ever want to get some revenge? I mean, how many of you at least just think it? I drive a little Mini Cooper, and there are times I've... I'm, I'm appalled to say it, when man, I got to get past them and cut them off, just the way they cut me off, right? We live in a world that loves revenge, don't we? In fact, I was, I was thinking about this this morning. How many movies are all about revenge? I mean, you think about it, right? And, and whether it's a comedy, an action, a thriller, a sci-fi comedy, you know, all the blends, all the sub-brands, all the genres of movies, think about the numbers of movies that have some, either this main storyline is about revenge, or there's been some kind of subplot where revenge has to take place. I mean, think about Braveheart. Think about Taken with Liam Neeson, right? Especially Taken. They made three three Taken movies? Like, it's not even that good of a movie. But it was always about revenge, wasn't it? I love Liam Neeson. You know, he's from Belfast, and he does that, you know that line, I have a certain set of skills, right? You know, I can't do it. My, my daughter, <laughs> this is really, I'm going down a rabbit trail. Sophie, my daughter, she said, hey, Dad, can you, like, pretend to be Liam Neeson and record my voicemail? <laughs> I was like, you're almost 18 and going to the Middle East. Yeah, I'll do that. <clears throat> I have a certain set of skills. Numchucks. Anyway, okay, I digress. I digress. But the point is that there are movies, so many of the movies and the TV shows that we watch deal with this subject matter of revenge. And the reason why is because revenge and judgment is a basic human instinct. Now, Um, This idea of judgment and revenge, you know who is the most judgmental. Cats. (laughs) I have a few pictures of cats. (laughs) Cats are the most judgmental. Now you guys know how much I love cats. Spawn of Satan, cats. But there was a recent article, there was a recent article, uh, I don't, put those pictures back up, they're just so good, aren't they? I mean, like, let's look at them really quick. I mean, that one top right is not judgmental at all. You know? It's like, I'm going to get you. But, but there, was a, there was a recent article, and this is, I can't believe this made it into a newspaper. There was a recent article in the New York Post. I mean, I'm talking June 24th, 2022, right? And there was a, they, they were trying to, they said that cats are the most judgmental thing on the planet. And they quoted, this is in a New York Post article, they quoted an award-winning certified cat behavior consultant named Marilyn Krieger. Wait, that actually exists? Somebody gets paid to be a certified cat behavior consultant? Anyway, this is what she said. Cats are not judgmental. 
There might be other things causing that expression. Perhaps the cat is feeling cornered, or there's another cat nearby, or maybe there's a slight pain or another animal around. Sounds to me like the cat's just being judgmental of what's happening around them. <laughs> but then she made, she made this statement. People judge. That's a human characteristic, not a feline characteristic. <laughs> now, I'll beg to differ, but I think she is right about that. That revenge and judgment is a human characteristic. And once again, you see it in the movies that we watch, the TV shows that we watch. I mean, just this week, take time as you're watching stuff to just see how much revenge takes place in those movies. My daughter, she's in the Middle East right now, and she just went from Jordan uh, over to Tel Aviv. She's doing her study abroad program. And if you've been watching the news this week, you know there's been a lot of bombings. And so she's like, hey, Dad, I can hear the bombs, you know? And I'm like, shared experience. I grew up in Belfast. I could hear the bombs too, you know? <clears throat> it was a bonding moment, you know? But she's only about 15 miles away. And, and the point that I'm, and, and what is it going on? Palestinians and Israelis. Judgment, revenge. I got to get mine back, right? I grew up in Northern Ireland. Loyalists and nationalists. We could come to our own country here, right? Liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, right? Like, as, as Laura said earlier, man, we just live in a country with so much division, and I've got to get my viewpoint across, and you've got to believe my viewpoint, and if you don't, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, tit for tat, right? It's a dog-eat-dog or a cat-judge-cat world out there. <laughs> and the reality is that during Jesus' time, it wasn't dissimilar. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and go, oh, it was so idyllic, and you know, Jesus is just sitting on a hillside talking a few, few kind of tweetable moments about what it means to live the good life. But these people, these early Christians, lived in a harsh world. The Romans used brute force and intimidation. The Jewish population tried to retaliate against these Christians who seemed to be taken over the world as they believed in Jesus and cared for the poor and the orphans. And we just recognize that, that even back then, they were dealing with this idea of revenge and judgment, and I've got to get you back for what you did to me. And Jesus shows up in the middle of it and says, there's an entirely different way to live life. In fact, Jesus not just talked about it, Jesus exemplified the fact that he was going to be merciful toward us. And what Jesus was calling his followers into was not a world of judgment and revenge, and I've got to get payback on you for what you did to me. But Jesus invited us to live out mercy. And you see it in the life of Jesus. You know, these disciples that were following them, they were totally susceptible to the same type of thing. I remember they were having this kind of conversation about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine having this kind of conversation? Jesus is there. He's healing people. He's walking on water. He's telling the storm to cease. All of these kinds of things are going on. And these guys are going to have a conversation about who's greatest in the kingdom. Classic missed the point, right? And what's so interesting is that in the midst of this argument, in the midst of this disagreement, in the midst of judging who's going to be the greatest, Jesus doesn't repay them what they actually deserve, which is a swift kick in the butt, by the way. But what does he do? He serves them. He has mercy on them by washing their feet. And this is who Jesus is to us. He's merciful to you and to I. And the word mercy... Literally means this, to act, 
It's an act of care and compassion to help someone who is hurting. Mercy is the act of humility and love and patience personified. And so where we think, oh, somebody should be punished for something, Jesus is saying, no, I want you to be merciful. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be caring. I want you to be humble. I want you to be loving. I want you to be patient, which sounds wonderful until you actually have to do it. Because they hurt you so deeply. Because they ought to be repaid for what they did to you. But Jesus invites us not to a a lifestyle of revenge and judgment, but to a lifestyle of mercy. I grew up, as I've said many times, I grew up in Northern Ireland, which meant I grew up in the Troubles. And if you don't know anything about that, uh, many people think, oh, it's Protestants against Catholics. It's not really. It's loyalists against nationalists. It's political ideologies. And should we be a united Ireland or not a united Ireland? And all of this kind of stuff. And for uh, decades, the way it unfolded was that there would be a bombing that would kill people. And then the other side would retaliate. And they would bomb. and and, And it just was this spiral of just getting worse and worse and worse. In 1987, uh, a guy by the name of Gordon Wilson was attending a Remembrance Day parade uh, with his daughter, Maria. Uh, This is Gordon uh, Wilson right here. Uh, He's since passed away. But 1987, he's in Enniskillen. He's attending this parade with his daughter, and the IRA plants a bomb that explodes during the Remembrance Day parade. The story goes that um, he was laying in the rubble. He was actually holding his daughter's hand. And uh, his daughter passed away with nine other people, and 63 people were injured and hospitalized. And here's what he said following just a number of hours to a BBC reporter. This is what he said just a few hours later. I've lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. That won't bring her back. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know that there is a plan. If I didn't didn't think that, I would commit suicide. It's part of a greater plan, and we shall meet again. So his daughter's just passed away, and the normal behavior in Northern Ireland is obviously to criticize and then go bomb. That's just how it worked. But here's this man who's just lost his daughter, and he said this, I bear no ill will. I bear no judgment. No grudge. He decided to live a different way. In fact, some 30 years later, Bono, how many know Bono? He's the lead singer of U2. If you don't, you've got to look him up. I mean, come on. He's the greatest Irish man ever to live. (laughs) Bono said this 30 years later. He says uh, that Gordon was so full of forgiveness, so inspiring, so humbling. His faith gives you faith. In other words, Gordon Wilson was modeling a different way of living life, a kingdom way of living life. And I got to be honest with you, just to be personal for a minute, you know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I'm not kidding you, I saw bitterness and unforgiveness and revenge and judgment. I grew up in it 18 years. I lived there before I moved here. And I remember when I got on a plane to come to America to go to Bible college, I remember thinking to myself, I have an opportunity to live a different way of life. I don't have to give myself to revenge and to judgment and to hating that group or that person. I can choose to live a different way. And I'm not saying I've done it perfectly, but God certainly used that marker in my life to say there's a different way to live life. We don't have to live life 
uh, trying to pay back and give revenge and judge other people, but we can see the big picture, understand the brokenness to which we live, and then we can act in local ways, in little ways, to share the mercy, the compassion, the kindness of Jesus with other people. And ultimately, isn't it Jesus that performed the ultimate act of mercy? Remember, we started in week one by saying that, that, man, I don't deserve this mercy that I'm receiving. I don't deserve what God gives me. I'm the beggar who's spiritually bankrupt, who's looking for mercy, and someone has to give it to me. And it was Jesus who left the majesty and splendor of heaven. He didn't have to come. He didn't have to do these things. But because he is merciful, he comes and pays a ransom so that you and I could be forgiven our debt of sin and could be set free to not hold bitternesses, to not hold grudges, to not hold unforgivenesses, and be released to live a different way of life, to be merciful, to be compassionate, and to be kind. Mercy comes from mercy, and our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. And Jesus, when he started to say, you want to know what the good life is? The good life is a person who first and foremost recognizes how spiritually bankrupt they are. That they need the mercy of another person if they themselves are going to be merciful. And so Jesus comes to give us mercy. But Jesus doesn't say, I want you to receive the mercy and then just kind of get on with your life and treat everybody with disdain or unforgiveness or whole grudges. No, he says, I want you to be merciful. There's this story found in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells this parable of this story of a man who owes, a a, a poor man who owes a richer man some debt. And, and the richer man is giving him a hard time about paying back the debt. But what, when the story unfolds, the richer man actually owes a way bigger debt to a king. And so the king forgives the richer man's debt. Now, how many of you know that what that ought to produce in us is this idea of mercy, that I'm going to forgive another person's debt to whom much is given, much is expected, right? That we've received a massive forgiveness of our debt. We ought to forgive others their debt toward us. And so what is it? What does it look like? What does a merciful person look like? There's two times, and there's a couple of times actually, where Jesus actually refers to what does it mean to be a merciful person. And the first thing that we find is this, is that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. For those of us that are following Jesus, for those of us recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and the fact that Jesus has extended us mercy, we ought to be those who live being merciful to others. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 10 through 13. He sat at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus, his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, The Pharisees were always poking at Jesus. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a a physician or doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." And the reality is that there's not one of us righteous, by the way, right? The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Every single one of us is sick and in need of a physician, a doctor. And so this is who Jesus comes for. He comes for you and for me. And then he turns the tables and he says, now listen, because I have come and extended mercy to you, you ought to learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what Jesus is doing, he's lifting a little phrase out of Hosea 6 and verse 6, where God accuses the people that their love is like the dew on the grass, right? It's there for a brief morning hour, and then it's gone. And all that's left is this empty form of burnt offering. And so the point that what Jesus is trying to say is, he's saying, listen, I want your hearts engaged. I want you to love me, have affection, feelings of affection toward me, but then I want you to put it into practice with other people. In other words, don't have this empty form of religion. You know what? I go to church. You know what? I'm in a small group. Hey, I even put a little money in the offering plate when it goes by. Hey, I serve at Kids Trek. All wonderful and amazing things. But what Jesus is challenging his followers to is not a form of religion, not doing all the right religious things. Jesus is challenging those who are following him to actually have a heart for him and put this faith into practice with other people. Now, it sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Until somebody crosses you. All the ideas of the Bible sound really good until you actually have to put them into practice. And this is what makes Jesus, following Jesus so hard. Because Jesus puts a demand on us to say, you guys, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be like me. And we said this at the outset, that, that being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is nothing more than becoming more and more like Jesus. That's why the Bible tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be conformed, what? To the image of Christ that God is forming and shaping and remolding us to reflect Jesus to the world around us. Which means we actually have to put this stuff into practice. And so in that sense, mercy is an action, not just an intention. Isn't that somebody said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions? I've had really good intentions of losing 25 pounds for like seven to eight years, honestly. And it hasn't affected me because I haven't put that into practice. And Jesus is demanding of those of us who follow Jesus the exact same thing. You've got to put this hunger and thirst for righteousness. It ought to be put into practice. It ought to be lived out. And in this sense, mercy is an actual action, not an intention. Now, probably the best story in the Bible that helps us understand this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, we, we talked about this. In fact, we unpacked it in detail a few weeks ago, right? You know the story. A Jewish man gets beat up right, on the road, to Demand, or the road back to Jerusalem. And so there he is laying on the road, and the pastor of the church walks by and goes on the other side. I'm not touching that thing right there, right? And then, this is what the Bible teaches, the worship pastor, so Scott Miller actually walks past the Jewish man, right? And he goes on the other side. And, and then we know the story that the Samaritan now, if you were a Jew, the Samaritan was your arch enemy. For some 400 years, they were considered like less than human. They were dehumanized. They, they weren't our brothers, right? They were enemies to us. And this Samaritan, this enemy of some 400 years, shows up and he actually stops and cares for the Jewish man. 
And what this story is presenting to us is crystal clear example of what it means to be merciful. Look at this verse, Luke chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. Or verse 30, yeah, 33 and 34. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And then if you circle in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline a few words. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so what does mercy look like? I think there's four things we get from these two verses. Number one is that mercy sees distress. Mercy sees distress. Now, we live in a big world And it's easy for us to flip on a news channel and have an opinion. It's easy for us to go on social media and maybe we have a sympathetic opinion. But what mercy does, it doesn't just see the distress. Mercy responds um, intentionally with a heart of compassion or pity towards a person in distress. A couple of years ago, um, with everything that went on with Amon Arbery, uh, and, and all of the kind of just division and challenge and difficulties in our country. I remember watching all of this unfold and going, man, it's just not right. It shouldn't be this way. But I remember in that moment, the Lord just challenging me, not just to have a thought, an opinion, a, a sympathy, a compassion, but to actually step into a place of action. And I didn't know what to do. I had a a lot of uh, my friends were African-American that were a part of my creative team and the community that we built back then. And and I remember the Lord just challenging me and and saying, hey, you got to step into that space because there's some people that are really hurting right now. And I remember I'm an Irishman, so, you know, I didn't even grow up here. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know. And uh, how do I, and I remember the Lord just saying, I want you to step into the space. And I just want you to say, Man, I'm so sorry this is going on. The the, the Lord would want me not just to have a thought about it, not just to have an intent about it, but to actually act upon it and to be in a space and just to sit with some of my friends who were going through some really challenging, difficult times. Just to care, just to be compassionate, just to be concerned. And that's what mercy does. Mercy sees distress, but mercy responds internally with a heart of compassion, but then it responds externally with a practical effort to relieve the distress. Look what, the, look what he did. He said he saw him, he had compassion upon him, and then he went to him and bound up his wounds. He saw the pain and the distress. He responded internally with a heart of compassion, but then he was moved to actually do something to relieve the distress. And the final thing that we see in this verse is that mercy acts even when the distress is an enemy. It's willing to cross lines. It's willing to step into uncomfortable spaces. And it might be that maybe you're facing a challenge or maybe there's some uh, kind of conflict or maybe somebody's wronged you. And man, you're just willing to kind of keep it at a distance. You're willing to build a brick wall. And maybe the Lord is saying this morning, man, how do you act in mercy? Not judgment, not revenge, not payback, not I'm going to hurt. But how do we respond with mercy? An eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help in spite of the enemy. Enmity, that's 
mercy. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. This is what Jesus, when he talks about mercy, he's trying to communicate to us that mercy is not empty religious formalism, that I just have intent and a heart. No, no, no. Mercy moves me towards the other person and moves me into that space so that I could love and to serve. What hungering and thirsting after righteousness does is it produces mercy within us that I'm willing to go to the other person, that I'm willing to forgive, that I'm willing to be humble, that I'm willing to be kind and compassionate and not pay back the hurt that somebody else has paid me. That's really quiet in the room right now. But I want to press a little bit because I think when we come to church and we read God's scripture that it ought to bear weight on our hearts. And I want to ask you this morning, man, is there someone that maybe the Holy Spirit's even putting his finger on your heart and saying, man, there's someone that you've maybe got to extend mercy to? Is there someone that you've got to extend forgiveness to? Is there someone that maybe the Lord is saying, hey, you got to be kind and compassionate to that other person? For some of you, that maybe means no more road rage this week. For others, there might be some really deep hurt that you've got to work through and process through. But here's what the Bible says. It says this, for those who are merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Now, it seems weird that Jesus would end this verse this way by saying, they shall obtain mercy. I thought that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it is. And so when Jesus says, you will receive mercy, you're going to obtain mercy as you are merciful to others, you in turn receive mercy. What Jesus is trying to help us understand here is that it's not some sort of punch card that if I'm, yep, I was merciful today, check. I was merciful today, check. Okay, hopefully Jesus is going to be merciful to me. No, Jesus already has been merciful to us, hasn't he? And because he's been merciful to us, what Jesus is looking for, like a good physician that wants to see if the medicine is actually working, Jesus wants to see in your and my life that the mercy that we have received is allowing us and and causing us to be merciful towards other people. And so Jesus is saying, you obtain mercy because of the mercy that's at work in you. And it goes right back to week one. It goes right back to the start of, you want to know what the good life is? I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have what it takes. I need to depend upon another. I need the mercy of another in my life. And isn't that who Jesus has been to us? Jesus has given us mercy. He gives us that which we don't deserve so that we can receive from him his grace. And Jesus, because he's been merciful for us, wants you and I, as his followers, to be merciful to other people. So I want to ask you just a couple of questions as we close. We're going to sing a song together and just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. But number one, do you recognize and receive, remember, God's unmerited, undeserved mercy? You know what the Bible says? His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
We're recipients of his unending mercy toward us. But the evidence that we've received that mercy is that in turn, we become more like Jesus and we are merciful towards other people. And so if that's true, I need to ask you then some other questions. Do you see the distress of other people? Maybe that person that is hurting you, maybe that person that crossed you, maybe that person that kind of did something to you that you're just gonna hold a grudge and hold back. Maybe there's something deeper going on in their life. And boy, if you understood what was going on, maybe you would go, oh my gosh, I didn't know. I can't tell you how many times I've held a grudge or maybe kind of held somebody at arm's length. And then all of a sudden, I hear the rest of the story and I realize, oh my goodness, there's something way deeper going on that's causing them to maybe suffer and hurt. And in that moment, I have a choice, right? Like, I'm going to be merciful. Are you moved with compassion? Are you moved to action? Are you moved to cross the aisle, to go across those divides? And to be merciful to those who maybe have caused you some pain. Why? Because he's been merciful to us. And so Jesus, this morning, as we close, Lord, I pray that you would move upon our hearts. Lord, we want to be those who follow you. And in following you, Lord Jesus, we don't want to just believe the right things and acknowledge, yeah, that's a good thing. That's Jesus. He's so amazing. He lives that way. But Lord, we want to be those who emulate you. We want to be those who reflect you. We want to be those who image you to the world around us. And so, Father, first and foremost, help us to be those who live mercifully towards other people. Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that so that our love for one another might draw others who are outside the kingdom, outside the story, into the story, Lord Jesus, because of your great mercy and love for us. And then, Lord, help us as a body of believers, as a family of faith, Lord Jesus, to live mercifully towards others in the precious name of Jesus.